Well, I'm glad that you're here and hopefully you've got a Bible or there's one in the pew rack in front of you or you can take your device and find it. But would you open God's Word, Isaiah chapter 6. We are in a brief series during the month of June uh, in the book of Isaiah. Of course, Isaiah is a big book. We're just kind of dipping our toe in the book and looking at some of the famous passages that are in this book. And today's focus is going to be on one of the most well-known passages in the entire book of Isaiah. So open your, book, your Bibles Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning to that, let me tell you about an experience that I had this past March. You know some of this, but you don't know all of the story. Uh, On March the 20th, I took my second ever ambulance ride to the hospital late one Sunday night. And I discovered, as we got to the hospital, later discovered that I had acute pancreatitis and gallstones. I was admitted to the hospital for a few days. I was put on a clear liquid diet. And I remember the dietician came to me, and in the middle of the day, she said, Mr. Shorter, would you like to talk about your options for dinner tonight? And I did what you did. I kind of laughed. I said, what are my options if I'm on a clear liquid diet? She said, well, you can have vegetable broth, or you can have beef broth, or you can have, uh, what was the other one? Chicken broth. And I thought, I just kind of laughed again. I said, just just surprise me, because... I'm thinking, it's hot water regardless of what you call it, you know. And now you need to know that I, because I had been sick, I hadn't had a Pepsi in a long time. I don't remember if it was days or weeks, but I hadn't had a Pepsi in a long time. And, and so when she, when she asked me, well, is there anything else you'd like? And I said, yes, I'd like to have a Pepsi. And she said, well, I don't think you can do that. I said, why not? It's liquid. And she went on to explain, well, you know, I think it's, it's dark, and you're supposed to have clear liquids and all this kind of... And I made my case that, you know, I really needed a Pepsi, and it'd be all right. And when she left, she never committed. She never said yes, she never said no. She, I had no idea. That evening, when the other one, you know, when the cafeteria worker brought my tray, guess what was on my tray? Two cans of Pepsi. The little cans, but two. (laughs) Two cans of Pepsi. Now, the problem with that is I had two nurses standing at the door when they brought the tray in. And the other problem with that is my wife was sitting in the room when they brought the tray in. So as you can imagine, a discussion started. Like, you can't have that. You can't, you're not supposed to have that. And we got in, and it was friendly banter. Nobody got upset. But I had a discussion with them that this is liquid. I'm on a liquid diet. And the nurses said, no, it's, it's dark. You're supposed to have clear liquids. I said, the, the jello is yellow. I mean, the jello is green. But you, you, you're giving me that? She said, well, green jello is okay. I said, well, then bring me a Mountain Dew. It's green. <laughs> she didn't do it. <laughs> Eventually, they just kind of got fed up with the hard-headed preacher, and they left with those two cans of Pepsi still on my tray. <laughs> Those two cans of Pepsi were still on my tray. I was winning the debate. And Lisa and I just continued to talk about whatever, you know, and eventually uh, it was time for her to go. So I was sitting in the chair, and she came over and gave me a kiss and told me goodbye. And and then without saying a word, she turned around and walked over to the tray, got those two cans of Pepsi, put them in her purse, and walked out the door. (laughs) She did. I'm still working on forgiving her. (laughs) 
Now, literally, when, when she walked in, it was so funny because she didn't say a word. She just kind of picked it up on the way out, slid it in her purse, and walked out the door. And I literally said out loud, well, there goes my Pepsi. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal when you lose a Pepsi. It's not that big of a deal when a Pepsi walks out the door. But it's a really big deal when you lose a person. It's a really big deal when a person walks out the door. It's a really big deal when your wife walks out the door. I mean, it's a really big deal when your husband suddenly dies. It's a really big deal when, God forbid, a child dies. How do you cope with having an empty chair at the dinner table? Life suddenly changes quickly, doesn't it? Most people during a time like that, myself included, most people during a time like that turn to God and they pray like they've never prayed before. And that's exactly what Isaiah did. Isaiah had a crisis in his, in his life and in his nation. There was an empty chair in his life. And it greatly disturbed him. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 begins this way. In the year that King Uzziah died. And now you probably weren't very upset when you read those words. The year was 740 B.C. We know exactly when this happened. It was 740 B.C. And that may not mean a whole lot to you, but in Isaiah's day, his original readers, that year marked the end of an era. You see, King Uzziah had been their king for 52 years. So if you were 52 or younger, he's the only king you've ever known. And now his seat is empty. To put that into perspective, I looked it up, and 52 years ago, we had Richard Nixon as our president, and in those 52 years, we have had 10 U.S. presidents. We had Nixon, then we had Ford, then we had Carter, then we had Reagan, then we had Bush number one, then we had Clinton, then we had Bush number two, then we had Obama, then we had Trump, and we had Biden. Every four to eight years, we've gotten a new leader for the last 52 years. But for the people of Israel, for the 52 years of their time, there was one leader, Uzziah. And for the most part, he was a good king. For the most part, he was a respected king. Except at the very end of his life. For the most part, he had been a good king for the people. And there had been, a, there had been an unparalleled time of prosperity and power. And then suddenly, he was gone. So, let's think of these words in this way. When you read in the text, in the year that King Uzziah died, let's read it this way. In the year that everything changed. Some of you know what that feels like, don't you? The year that everything changed. If we had the time, you could tell us your story. You could tell us the exact year when everything changed. In chapter 6, Isaiah tells us the story of the year when everything changed and how that crisis led him to a deeper encounter with God. And that happens sometimes. 
that in times of crisis, we pray like we've never prayed before. And thankfully, in those times when we genuinely open our hearts to God and we need His help, in those times, we can have an encounter with the living God. And that encounter with the living God can be life-changing. Isaiah, in chapter 6, verse 1, goes to the temple, we believe. This text doesn't say it specifically. He may have just been praying and saw a vision of the temple. Or he may have been in the temple itself when he was praying. But one thing for sure, he prayed and he prayed. And as he prayed, he encountered the living God. And that encounter in this crisis in his life and in his nation led him to a decision that changed the direction of his life. Today I want to walk through this text with you. There's only eight verses. I want to walk through this text with you and show you how you and I can have a life encounter, a life-changing encounter with God too. First of all, here's the first thing I want to show you. Let's just put it on the screen. When we encounter God, we see Him as He really is. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. High and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs or angelic beings, and each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah 6 is perhaps the greatest scripture in all the Bible on the subject of God's holiness. God allowed Isaiah to peek into the heavenly throne room, if you will, to get a glimpse of His holiness like no other human being probably has ever seen. And Isaiah was shaken to the core because of what he saw, because of what he experienced. He describes it this way. He says, I saw the Lord seated On a throne. The throne of Uzziah was empty. But the throne of God was not. God's throne was occupied. King Uzziah had died. But God was still alive and in charge. And Isaiah saw the Lord seated on that throne. And when he saw God seated on this throne. He saw something that that will be obvious to all of us. But it needs to be stated. He recognized God is different from us. How different is God? Well, the text shows us. Here's how different God is. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, and He was high and exalted. That is, He was was seated on the throne, and, and He was not, watch this, watch this, He was not pacing back and forth, wondering, what am I going to do now that Uzziah has died? He's seated on the throne, and He is sovereign, and He is in charge. And He is the Lord. Isaiah refers to him as the Lord. Notice that uh, in that text, it's in all caps. Uh, or later, in, 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 uh, down in verse 3, it's in all caps. The Lord, in all caps, is God's covenant name. The name of uh, Yahweh. And it's talking about His position as the ruler who is ruling over everyone and everything. And so let's put this into perspective as we continue to read verses 2-4. through four. Above Him, 
Above this one sitting on the throne. Above the Lord who was sitting on the throne. Above him were seraphs. And each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. And with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. In other words, they were not saying this to God. They were saying this to one another. And here's what they were saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Now, I've told you this before, but let me remind you that in our English language, we've got several ways, especially when we're writing something, we've got several ways of emphasizing, putting emphasis on something. When we're writing something, we can put it in italics if we're typing it out or we can underline it or we can put it in bold print or we can capitalize it or we can put an exclamation point. The Jews, if they wanted to emphasize something, they would use repetition. And I've told you this before, but it's so important that you understand this. In other words, if they wanted to really emphasize something, they would repeat it twice. And even Jesus in his day, in the New Testament time, Jesus who was a Jew, he would repeat something often. Like he would say, truly, truly. It was his way of emphasizing, like, be sure you hear this. Truly, truly. He would repeat it twice to give emphasis to it. In Isaiah's day, as he sees this view of God, the seraphs, the angelic beings, are emphasizing the holiness of God. And they're emphasizing it not by saying it once, and not even by saying it twice, but by saying it three times. This is the only place in all the Bible where you find that. The only place in all the Bible where you find this, this trifold holiness Maybe it's for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. God the Father is holy. God the Spirit is holy. God the Son is holy. Or maybe it was just a way of identifying how different God is from us. He is holy, not just holy, not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And nowhere in the Bible do you find that anywhere else. It never says in the Bible, for example, that God is love, love, love. Never says he is faithful, 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 though he is all of those things. But here in Isaiah, in this vision of God, he sees the holiness of God and it was emphasized three times. Now, let me pause for a second. I want to show you something here. The Bible uses this word, holy, and it is an important word because it literally means different or cut. Look up here for a moment. I can illustrate the word holiness. It means cut, literally. You say, well, what are you talking about? In other words, there is a separateness between us and God. A set-apartness, if you will. A sacredness. God is not one of us. God is not like us. Well, look up here. God is holy. 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 There is a set-apartness there. A sacredness there. And He's different from us. And Isaiah, when he sees the holiness of God, when he sees how different God is from him, he is stunned and silent and he is shaken to the core at the holiness of God. Now, one more time, let me show you something. This doesn't mean simply that God's better than us. It means literally that God is different from us. He's absolutely pure. He's absolutely perfect. He is absolutely sinless. And that cannot be said about anybody else here, including the one speaking. Anybody here, raise your hand and say, I'm absolutely pure and absolutely sinless. I'm absolutely perfect. 
No, because if you raised your hand, you'd be lying. Then you'd mess it all up, right? None of us can say that. In fact, Isaiah later says in chapter 64, all, A-L-L, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Because none of us, look up here, none of us are like God. None of us are righteous. None of us are holy. We all have sin in our lives. We all struggle with sin in our hearts. So Isaiah, in this crisis time, he is praying and he has this vision. And the first thing that he notices, he sees God as he really is. He sees the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the incredible, incredible person of God. And then, secondly, not only did he see God as he really is, but Isaiah saw himself as he really is. Isaiah's looking at all of this and he suddenly recognizes something about himself. Now remember it says in verse 4 that the, that the, or verse 3 that the seraphs or these angelic beings are calling to one another and they're, they are saying, holy, holy, holy. Then we get to verse 5. Isaiah's first words, the first time he speaks in this text, the first, this is his story and the first time he speaks in the story He says, woe is me, or woe to me, I am ruined. And then he tells us why. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Isaiah is watching all of this unfold, and as he has this vision of the holiness of God, he basically, this is Shorter's translation, he says, that's God? If that's God, then I'm a dead man. If that's God, I have no hope. If that's God, I I don't know what I'm going to do because my lips are not holy. Remember, he saw the seraphs with their lips declaring the holiness of God. And there was something about that event, there's something about what his ears heard, and he could not stop thinking about the fact that his lips were not holy. And the people he lived around were no better. And so he said, I, I am absolutely done. I got no hope. Do you remember the song? We sang it in the first service. Do you remember the song, uh, Amazing Grace? You know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's really what Isaiah's talking about. He said, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm just a wretch. I've got... I've got nothing to offer God. A.W. Tozer said, when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of trying to grasp it intellectually, but also a sense of personal vileness that is almost too much to bear. There is a personal vileness, Isaiah was saying, in my own life, that is almost too much to bear. And so, here's where I want to kind of Turn to the good news if I can for a moment. Here's what I want you to see. First of all, when we encounter God, we see Him as, we really, as He really is. We see ourselves as we really are. But here's the good news. Not only can we encounter God, but when we look at this text, we see we can also experience God. Look at this next point. When we experience God, His grace takes away our guilt. Now this is my favorite part, I think, of the whole text. I want you to read it carefully, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah in verse 5 had cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined, Uh, I've got no hope, etc. 
In the very next verse, look what happens. Then one of the seraphs, the angelic beings, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, because Isaiah said, I, my sin, my, I'm a man of sinful lips. And so this seraph came and touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now before we get too far into that, I want you to notice something. Tell me, church, talk to me. Who took the initiative in this encounter in, where he experienced forgiveness? Who took the initiative? Was it Isaiah or was it God that took the initiative? Easy question. Who took the initiative? God did. And don't you dare miss that. Isaiah, all he said was how bad he was. Verse 5. All he talked about, I'm ruined. I got no hope. I'm a sinful man and I live among sinful people. That's all he talked about was his sin in verse 5. And in verse 6, when watch this, when he acknowledged his sin, God in His graciousness took the initiative to provide forgiveness. Now, this is the only place in Scripture where we see an angel taking a coal from the fire. It probably was the altar in the temple where sacrifices were made. And the angel took the coal from the fire and he brought it and touched the lips of Isaiah. Now, this was a symbolic act. So don't, don't try to press that too much. How was he saved? How was he forgiven? It was just a symbolic act of God taking the initiative and God providing the forgiveness. But I want you to see what the seraph said. This is so beautiful. The seraph said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Sin is atoned for. Let's look at those two phrases. Your guilt is taken away. Now listen to me. If you've ever had real deep guilt, you know that you really can't get rid of it on your own, right? If you've ever had a bad, made a bad decision, if you ever did something and you regret it to this day, if, if you ever, you know, it's like, how did I fall for his lies? Why did I do that? Why did I go there? Why, why? If you've ever been racked with guilt, you know that it's just always there. In fact, David, King David said in the Psalms, he says, when I go to sleep at night, my guilt is always before me. In other words, David said, I, I can't get rid of it. And here's Isaiah. The seraph comes and cleanses him first, cleanses his lips with the coal, and then the angel, the seraph declares, your guilt is gone. Somebody needs to hear this today. Your guilt can be gone. And God doesn't pretend. God doesn't pretend like you didn't do it. God doesn't pretend like it's okay, don't worry about it. God brings about the forgiveness and then He announces your guilt is gone. Then, as if we, 
Isaiah would say, yeah, but what about? And he says, and your sin is atoned for. Can I give you a little word picture of that word atoned? The idea of atoned is has been covered. And the Bible says for us as New Testament believers that our sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. Now can I tell you something? When your sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus, this is what the Bible teaches. When your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, it's as if God Himself can't see it anymore because He sees the blood covering it. Your guilt is gone and your sin is atoned for. So, to understand that, you need to see that here was a man racked with guilt here was a man who, who acknowledged, once he saw the holiness of God, he saw the sinfulness of himself. Here was a man who did not know what he was going to do because he was living in a crisis. And then suddenly he heard the best news he had ever heard. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is atoned for. I want to tell you a story real quickly that relates to this. Uh, Jonathan, our son, was uh, recently, his, one of his videos was, was on 700 Club this week. It was about a girl in California uh, named Cindy. And uh, I'm not going to get into her story. It was a very tragic story. Cindy was abused at 14 years old for several years. And I'm not going to get into all of that. But that abuse for th- several years led her to make poor decisions. And, and poor decisions led to more problems and, and deeper into sin and darkness and and she struggled with guilt for a long time. Why, why would I do this? Why did I allow this? Why? And she talked about she was racked by guilt. And one night, her life was just so hard and difficult. And though she was married and had kids later on, uh, life just still was not working very well for her. She tried everything. She tried meditation. She tried counseling. She tried everything she knew to try. And it just wasn't working. And Things were getting worse and things that are in her mind from 12 years ago just were racking her, wrecking her life. She said one night, she and her husband met a, a, a young pastor that they both knew. They hadn't seen each other for a long time. They kind of reconnected and they were talking and everything. And then the pastor said, can I pray with you? That was his first question. Can I pray with you? And they said yes. And he prayed with them. Then he asked a second question. He asked it directly to Cindy. He said, Cindy, and this was after he had prayed. He said, Cindy, have you ever accepted Christ into your life? She said, no. Then he asked a third question. The third question was, Cindy, would you like to? And as she listened to the pastor, here's what Cindy said, and I'm quoting from the video. She said, I couldn't believe that someone so holy and worthy like him would want someone like me. She said, I, I had tried everything else. Clearly, it wasn't working. And then here's my favorite line. She said, She said, I tried everything else and clearly it wasn't working. And then here comes Jesus. I love that line. I tried everything else to fix my life. I tried meditation, I tried counseling, I tried different things. And then here comes Jesus. And here, this last statement is a good one too. She said, I was so surprised. 
You know why she was so surprised? She felt like she had to always live with that guilt. She felt like she had to always live with that pain. She felt like she could never get away from those problems. And then here comes Jesus. That was Isaiah. It's another time. It was a different crisis. But that was Isaiah. In this time of national and personal crisis, he's crying out to God, praying like he's never prayed before. And he saw God as he really is. And he saw himself as he really is. And then... He experienced God's grace. His grace takes away our guilt. But let me tell you the last point. Look at this. When we experience God, His call takes away our reluctance. And the reason I say that is because look what happens. After, in verse 7, after it is announced, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. After it is announced, verse 8, then it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And he said, Here I am. Send me. Now what's amazing about that, just in verse 5, he said, Woe is me. And now he's saying, Send me. What in the world happened? What made the difference? I'll tell you what made the difference. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is atoned for. You see, when you understand what God has done for you, you really do want to do something for Him. Can I say that again? When you understand what God has done for you, you really do want to do something for Him. So Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Andy Stanley, who's the son of famed preacher Charles Stanley, I read in a book a long time ago that Andy said when he was a young teenager, they were driving around town one day, and, and Charles Stanley was, you know, he was a typical Baptist preacher talking about being called by God and called by God and called by God, and God calls you to do this and that kind of thing. And Andy said he, he struggled with that because he, he wanted to serve the Lord, but he, he never felt called by God to do that. He said one day he was riding around town with his dad, Charles Stanley. He said, Dad, let me ask you a question. If you don't feel called to ministry, can you just volunteer? <laughs> and Charles just kind of chuckled and said, Son, I guess you can. You can volunteer to serve the Lord. And Andy said, Well, that's what I want to do. I want to volunteer. That's what Isaiah did. He volunteered. Here I am. I volunteer. Because my sin is atoned for. And my guilt is gone. So whatever it is you want me to do, here I am. Send me. Before I close, I've got to remind you of something. There was one question Isaiah did not ask. When God said, who will go for us? Who can I send? Who will go for us? The one question Isaiah did not ask was where? Seems like a logical question, doesn't it? Who can we send and who will go for us? And uh, Question, yes, Keith, I see your hand. Where? Where? That's not Isaiah. When God said, who can I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, I, I will. 
Listen, because when you're really serving God, you don't get to choose the destination. You just get to choose if you're going to be obedient or not. Don't really get to choose the destination. He chooses the where. Your goal is to be surrendered. Let's pray about that. Would you join me as we pray? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Isaiah, as he was praying one day, he was in crisis mode. It was an empty seat. King Uzziah had died. It was the year that everything changed. But as he earnestly prayed to God, it became the year that his life changed. It became the year that God changed the direction of his life. It became the year that he understood like he had never understood before. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is atoned for. In the worst days of his life, God did some of his best work in Isaiah's life. For some of you, I understand that when we hit those points of crisis, and those points of loss, and when somebody walks out that door, it is a crisis. Cry out to God like you have never cried out to him before. Ask the Lord to help you to encounter Him and that you can see Him as He really is and so that you can see yourself as you really are. And ask God to help you to experience Him. To experience His grace. To experience His goodness. And to send you out once again to serve Him. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're grateful that you are gracious and you are good. May you minister to grieving, hurting people today by your presence, by your word, by your grace. And for those that, Lord, in these times of crisis may have a difficulty where just the sins of the past are really they're struggling with that, I pray that they would truly repent, turn from their sin, and may you declare over them, your guilt is gone. Your sin is atoned for. Not because of what we've done, Lord, but because of Jesus, His death on the cross, dying for our sins. We are so grateful and so thankful. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.